So I think most of us have been here before on this Lenten journey. Began back on Ash Wednesday. Last Sunday we celebrated the shouts of Hosanna and waved palm branches. Just like they did when Jesus entered into the city that day. Boy, did things change a few days later. Today's Monday, Thursday, a very busy day and night for Jesus that year, um, followed by uh, terrible things tomorrow as he paid the price for every one of your sins. And then, of course, we know the end of the story and we know the celebration of Easter. We can celebrate that he rose and so will we. Now, I got to tell you, I love to do Monday, Thursday service. And the reason I do is because the whole service is about one word, and that word is love, right? It's about Jesus' love for us, the Father's love for us, and then our reaction. Do we love other people in response to his love? And it's the same message every Monday, Thursday. And yet, quite frankly, we're all in different places every year when Monday, Thursday rolls around. And so it hits us differently each time we sit in a service like this or at home watching at a service like this. Tim Keller tells a story about his brother-in-law never would wear a seatbelt ever. And Tim would berate him for it and just get on his back, but he wouldn't wear it. Well, one day, his brother-in-law is picking Tim up at the airport, and there's his brother-in-law, got a shoulder harness, seatbelt on, and, and Tim looks at him and goes, what happened? What changed you? And he said, well, my friend got in an accident, and I visited him in the hospital. He didn't have a seatbelt on, got in a car accident, went through the windshield, lots of stitches, and I thought to myself, you know what? I better wear a seatbelt. Well, you know, Tim asked him, he goes, that's kind of weird. You're an adult. You didn't realize that before, that if you go through the windshield, you might get hurt? And he said, well, you know, I knew it, of course. I didn't get any new information when I went to the hospital that day. But the information I got seemed new to me. It got real to me. It sunk down into my heart and changed the way I live my life. Well, the information you hear today may or may not be new to you. But my prayer is that it seems new to you, that it sinks into your heart, and it changes the way you live. Now, in case you were wondering, today is not Monday, Thursday. And I know this word Monday can certainly be confusing. Try typing it and seeing what your computer wants to do with that word. But, but you might have wondered what that word Monday really means. And, and it comes from Latin, mandanum novum, and, and what it literally means is a new command. Now, this is confusing to me because I know that God gave us the Ten Commandments. Now, what's this new commandment all about? Well, Jesus tells us what it's all about when he simply says in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. See, Jesus wasn't saying, okay, we're going to get rid of the 10 commandments. He wasn't saying we need 11 commandments. What he's saying is everything contained there in God's word is about love. The first three commandments about loving God and the second set of seven about loving our neighbor as ourselves. And you may say, okay, that makes sense, but what does it look like? What does love that God's talking about really look like? Well, St. Augustine has a pretty good definition. 
It says love has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That's what love looks like. Well, we're going to get back to this Monday, Thursday direction we were going. But, you know, up to this point in Lent, we've had a sermon series that I think has just been an incredibly powerful one, and it's called Were You There? And each week we've been looking at characters that were either around the cross or certainly involved in Jesus being on the cross. And so today we're going to take a look at Judas. What's it like to be one of the 12? To be named in that list, identified with certainty as one of the 12 closest associates of Jesus. We ate with him. We traveled with him. We heard every word Jesus said and watched everything he did. That's what's different about this kind of discipleship. There's no separation between who you are in public and who you are in private. Basically, no hiding of your true self. Flaws and all. We shared everything, food, money, you name it. Like Peter the Loudmouth, James and John, son of thunder, Matthew the tax collector, Thomas the doubter. We all had our quirks, our roles. What's my role? Treasurer. I hold the money bag. There's a reason for that. I make sure we don't give so much to the poor that we don't have anything to eat. Seriously, I'm surrounded by bleeding hearts. If I didn't keep a separate stash that no one knows about, we'd run out all the time. Jesus talks about the new world. He says when he sits on his throne, there will be 12 thrones for us. One for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The 12. That's us. In a lot of ways, Jesus trusts us. He sent us out in twos to multiply his influence. We did some amazing things. I drove out demons. I healed diseases. We raised the dead. And for those who still rejected us, we shook the dust off our feet and moved on to people more deserving. I can't describe how great that was to be that kind of influencer. For about a year, Jesus rode this wave of popularity. Then he started saying the wrong things. The crowd started dispersing. That kind of decline, it's depressing. I couldn't figure out what he was doing. It got to a point when most everybody had turned back and gone home. Jesus looked at us, the 12, and asked, Do you want to go as well? Before I could answer, Peter did, Lord, whom shall we go to? You have the words of eternal life. That's the expectation, right? The ship sinks, the crew goes down with the captain. Here was the response from our rabbi. Did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He didn't say anyone's name. He wasn't looking at me, but still, anyway, Like I said, the ship is sinking, the crowds are bailing, the chief priests and Pharisees are off to the side scheming. It doesn't take a genius to tell where this is all heading. The Passover is coming up and Jesus still wants to go to Jerusalem. It's like wanting to go to a battleground for a picnic. So we enter Jerusalem with a large procession. They're praising Jesus, the hair standing up on the necks of the Pharisees. The atmosphere is charged. We all gathered in this upper room for the Passover. It was like a place of calm in the middle of a raging sea. Again, here's what our rabbi says. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. 
we're all looking around, trying to figure out who he's talking about. So Peter tells John to ask. Jesus says, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. To this point, he hadn't said anyone's name. He wasn't looking at me, but still. You know what happened? He dipped the bread in the wine and handed this morsel to me. I tell you, I put this bread in my mouth and it burned. Now there's no doubt he's talking about me. I followed this rabbi for three years through the ups and downs. He says, I have a devil. He says, I'm going to betray him. Then he says, what you're going to do, do quickly. Are you kidding me? I don't think anybody even knew what was happening. So I grabbed the money bag and I'm out of there. They thought I was buying something for the feast, but I'm gone. I step out into the darkness and I'm not going back. If Jesus wants a standoff, I know who to talk to. These same chief priests have been watching this whole drama play out. It's not my first Passover with Jesus. There are crowds all over Jerusalem by day, but it's different when it's dark. I know exactly where this standoff is going to play out. Jesus and his disciples, 12 bleeding hearts and one realist, me. So when I say the name Judas to you, what it comes to mind? Betrayal, right? And yet the reality is he was one of the 12 he traveled for three years side by side with Jesus. He watched Jesus' miracles. He watched the ministry that he had. He was the treasurer for the group. He was also a zealot. He was a guy who had a political agenda. He hated the Roman occupation. And Judas is kind of a common name. There's others in the New Testament, including Jesus' half-brother, Judas. But today I want us to look at Judas Iscariot. He's the son of Simon Iscariot. And, and the question is, what do we know about him? Well, as I prepared this message, I realized we have probably have all asked similar questions about him. I think we've all asked the same questions about him. For instance, if you could talk to him, wouldn't you say, why? Why, why did you do this? What were you thinking of? Why would you betray Jesus? And I think there's three theories that can make some sense to this. I think the first one is that maybe he betrayed Jesus for the money. I think at first glance this makes some sense, especially when we read John 12, 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, a keeper of the money bag. He used to help himself to what was put in it. Well, that's a telling tale, isn't it? Money was a key motivator for Judas, he stole money meant for ministry. He stole money from Jesus. And yet, if that was his main objective in this, why so little money? I mean, 30 pieces of silver equivalent to a couple hundred bucks in our economy. Couldn't he have gotten more? Or maybe he betrayed Jesus because he was disillusioned. I think a lot of this makes some sense that he was really looking and expecting Jesus to lead this uprising against Rome, that there was going to be this overthrow of the Roman occupation and, and, and there would be a position of power maybe for Judas if he's hanging around with this guy, Jesus. And when he found out that that wasn't the intention of Jesus, then you know, maybe he got angry and betrayed him. 
Or maybe he said, well, you might be a Messiah, but that ain't the one I want to follow. I want power here on earth and money. Maybe he betrayed Jesus because he was frightened. You know, I mean, you could see the handwriting on the wall. The end is near for this guy named Jesus. And maybe he betrayed him just to save his own skin. No way for sure and no, but maybe, just maybe, he did it. All three were contributing factors to why he did it. But one thing's for sure, the moment that Judas betrayed Jesus was the biggest mistake any man could ever have made. So we don't know exactly why he did it, but there are other questions, and I'm sure you've asked the same ones. Like a question like, where's Judas today? Is he in heaven? Was he forgiven? Is he in hell? Now, as a pastor, I would never preach a person into hell. And yet, I've got to look at God's word. So Judas commits suicide, and they need to replace him. And so we read about this story in Acts 1. And they're praying, and then they said they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two guys here that we've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas has left to go where he belongs. They cast lots, fell on Matthias, and he was added to the eleven. Catch that phrase? Judas went to where he belongs? That hardly sounds like someone who is in streets of gold and face-to-face with our loving Savior. It sounds like he got what he deserves, and yet, before we smugly make that judgment, we all deserve to spend eternity in hell because we've all sinned and fallen short and the wage of sin is death. And yet we also know the gospel truth. We know that if we confess our sins and call Jesus our Lord and Savior... We get to go and spend eternity in heaven with him. A couple other verses are quotes from Jesus about Judas. In John chapter 6, Have I not chosen you the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who though one of the twelve was later to betray him. Now, he doesn't say that Judas is the devil, but he certainly tells us in Luke 22 that Satan entered into Judas. Satan impacted, affected, and caused actions there. And then one of the neat little verses is we see that after he goes away to make the final arrangements, we see Jesus is praying for his disciples. I mean, it's just this incredible prayer. He's going to die, but he's praying for his disciples in John 17. He says, while I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction. So that scripture would be fulfilled. Now before we jump to a wrong conclusion, know that Jesus died for every single sin that anybody has ever committed or will commit. And when we confess that we sin and ask forgiveness, we get eternal life. The question is, Did Judas ever call Jesus his Lord and Savior? There's no evidence. No evidence in God's word that he ever called Jesus Lord or Savior. And it's a pretty important question, so important that we see that uh, uh, Jesus asked in Matthew uh, 16, he asked the disciples, oh, what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? And, of course, some of you know that Peter got it right. Simon Peter said, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of the living God. But we never see anywhere where Judas did that. 
He calls him a rabbi. He calls him a teacher. Maybe he didn't believe Jesus was a Messiah, or maybe he believed he was a Messiah, but he's not accomplishing any of the plans that Judas has. Either way, it's pretty clear to see that Judas was really concerned about himself, his own agenda, the money in the money bag. Well, let me ask you a question, the same question that Jesus asked the disciples. How about you? Who do you say Jesus is? Is he a nice guy? Is he a good teacher? Is he a fun story to talk about? Or is he your Lord and Savior? It's the only question on the test when you knock on the door of heaven, whether you're going to get in or not. It's a one-question test. We also see that Judas didn't do very well because he got the title Son of Perdition. What a title. It means a man that is doomed to destruction. The verse that I read just a little earlier, but in the King James Version, says, While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them was lost but the son of perdition. That scripture might be fulfilled. Talking about Judas here. Perdition means uh, um, eternal damnation, utter destruction, a synonym for hell. But know this about Judas. It describes a person who had a certain closeness to God, had an understanding of what salvation and forgiveness is about, and then denies it. Now, God knew it was going to happen, right? He knew that in advance that Judas was going to betray Jesus and that Jesus would die on the cross for our sins. However, the fact that God knew he was going to do it certainly doesn't excuse or absolve Judas from the punishment of what he did. He made his own choices, And yet, what's intriguing to me is God paints this picture in this plan. He not only uses all the good things we do, but he's able to weave people's sins and and evil that they have into God's plan. In this case, so that Jesus could die on a cross for you and for me. And again, remember that Judas traveled three years with Jesus. God gave him ample opportunity for salvation and repentance. And even after he had betrayed him, he could have got down on his knees and says, Lord, forgive me. But he didn't. Yeah, he had remorse. I mean, we can see that there was this fear of, oh my, what have I done? Throws the coins back. But he never, at least we never see that he in any way repented in any way. Instead, he just went away and killed himself. Now, to repent, for us to know, is to confess, I I messed up, I sinned, and then say, Lord, help turn me away from that sin. Help turn me in the direction that you want me to be. So what can we really learn from this story of Judas? I assume none of you are going to sell him for 30 useless coins, but I want to ask you a harsh question. What would or maybe have you already traded for Jesus? Now, now, before you get all offended by that question, I know you're not going to sell him for 30 coins. But have you ever betrayed him? Think about that question. Have you ever ignored him? Have you ever acted like he's not who he claims to be? You ever claim you're smarter than he is? And maybe you've done that and kind of rationalized, well, I needed to do it because I wanted to get a better job. I wanted to get a promotion, so I betrayed Jesus. Or, 
or maybe to save your own skin, or, or maybe to get a better grade on a test in school, or maybe to get a date with that hot girl or guy that you've been watching in the halls. Would you betray him for a million dollars? Let's get more real with that number. Would you betray him because he didn't live up to your expectations? Or maybe because he let you down? How much is the Son of God worth to you? Interesting question. You call yourself a Christian and a follower of the Lord. Maybe you ought to wrestle with that question a little bit. Have you turned your sins over to the Lord? Have you repented and walked in a different direction? Have you called him your Lord and Savior? I think in the end, most of us, when we wrestle with those questions, come up and say, yeah, I, I fail him often, and yet I do confess. I do trust him as being my Lord and Savior, the one who died on Good Friday, the one that rose on Easter morning. Let's tie this back to Monday, Thursday again. Jesus gathered with the disciples for the Passover feast. God had told him every year, I want you to do this. I want you to remember the fact that God delivered the Israelites from slavery. And so they were doing that. They were in an upper room that John and Peter had gone ahead and prepared a place around a table there in that room. And it's a familiar story. It's a familiar picture. We've all seen the picture of the Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci telling everybody, come on this side of the table, let's take a selfie so we can remember this. I'm just teasing you. But this was no ordinary meal, right? I just wish I could have been there. Ask Jesus, just what are you teaching them? What are you teaching us in these very last moments that you're going to have them around the table? Well, the answer is right there in front of you on the screen. It's the word love. What was his object lesson? Well, we see that he got up from the meal he took off his outer clothing. He wrapped the towel around his waist. After that, he poured water in a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. This is an incredible story. Ponder it. Listen and think about it. He's in the head seat at the table. And, by the way, he's going to die tomorrow. What's he concerned about? The disciples. Takes on a servant role kneels down and washes dust and mud and sewage off of their sandal-clad feet. Remember, there's no sidewalks to keep their feet clean. There's no Nike tennis shoes to wear. There's no sewers to clean the streets. Man, those feet would have been tired and dirty and blistered and stinky. They would have been the before picture for a Dr. Scholl's foot spray, I think. Hard to imagine anybody stooping down and washing those feet. And yet remember, this is the Savior doing it. And he washed Judas's feet. Picture that moment. And then be reminded that he humbled himself then. And tomorrow we're going to come back and celebrate the fact that he humbled himself by dying on a cross. For sins he didn't commit. For your sins. An act of servanthood teaching us that servanthood isn't about power, certainly not about position and education and wealth. It's not about any of those things. 
Christian servanthood is demonstrated when we have a willingness to help and serve our brothers and our sisters. And then on this same night, he then institutes this incredible meal, this meal in which he gives us and the disciples that day his body and blood in and through these elements for the forgiveness of sins. Cars were lined up out here in the snow earlier today. Drive up communion to have the meal. We're going to receive communion here. We're not going to do it on Easter, but next Sunday you come back and receive this same meal that he presented to his disciples. And then he challenged them as he challenges us to now go out and do likewise. Go out and wash other people's feet. Maybe or maybe not literally, but go out and meet their needs. Meet them where they are, physically, emotionally, spiritually. The people he's placed in your circle of influence. Invite them in with the power of God's word and then let God's word do the rest. Imagine you're probably sitting there nodding. Okay, Dave, that's eh, not too bad of a sermon today. Yeah, I feel pretty good. I'll be able to walk out of here feeling all right. Let me ask you a question then if you're feeling that way. Are there limits to whose feet you would wash? I'm not talking so much the literally, but are there limits to who you'll reach out and serve and help and draw closer to the Lord? How about that homeless panhandler guy that annoys you every time you got tickets to go down to a sporting event or concert and now you feel guilty because you're not helping him? How about the kid no one will sit next to in school? No one will walk or talk to in the hallway. How about the neighbor who really doesn't cut their grass right? You know, really doesn't fit in our neighborhood. Would you wash the feet of a Muslim, a Buddhist, an atheist? How about the single mom that you know needs help or the hurting and suicidal student that lives in your neighborhood? How about a couple facing divorce? The list goes on and on. Choose. Would you be willing to wash the feet of the handicapped, the oppressed, the poverty-stricken, the lonely. Who has Jesus brought in your path for you to serve, for you to get to know, for you to invite them to learn who Jesus is? So, Father, he hears his two kids, and they're playing, and one of them is uh, the older brother's teaching the younger brother uh, all the liturgical parts of a church service. And they're near the end of this game they're playing. And he says to his younger brother, do you know what it means when the pastor ends up the service like this? Do you know what that means? The younger brother thinks for a while and goes, yeah, I think so. You just heard about how much Jesus loves you. And now he's telling you go that way and you go that way and reach everybody. That kid got it right. Because God loves us, because of Monday, Thursday, because of Good Friday, because of Easter, we're to touch everybody's lives that we can. Don't make the same mistake as Judas. Know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Make him your number one priority, nothing else equally important. And then live accordingly. Serve and love other people couple little action steps maybe as you uh, walk out of here later or if you're at home watching this uh, 
couple action steps that you can have during this week. Number one, are you willing to personally say, I will declare Jesus as my Lord and Savior? If you've never done that, do it. He's not just a nice guy. He's your Lord and Savior. Are you ready to say, I'm going to search and think about and remove anything that I would take to betray Jesus? Any people, any finances, any objects that I'm okay on bending who Jesus is in order to have? Are you saying that you would be available to wash the feet, again, literally or not literally, of whoever Jesus brings into your pathway? I'd also challenge you to come and worship again tomorrow. Go online and worship if you haven't reserved a spot. Easter, and then every weekend after that, worship your Lord and Savior, and then participate in this red-letter challenge. i got to tell you, we're looking at the words of Jesus here. We're going to be able to really delve into those, as Pastor Mark talked about a little bit earlier. Lord, just thank you, thank you, thank you. You love us unconditionally. You love us in spite of us. Thanks for washing away our sinfulness. You did it first through our baptism. And now you seal the deal through your death on a cross for us. Thank you for the holy meal that we're about to receive. Help us to call you Lord and Savior. Amen.